0: With you this morning, and uh, hope you all had a good Christmas. And uh, I had a great Christmas with uh, with kids and grandkids. It's great to have them around. I actually talked to my brother um, who lives in Laguna Beach, California, on Christmas Day, and I was bragging. One of the reasons I called to say hey, but also just to say hey, you know what? Uh, it's warmer in Central Illinois than it is in Laguna Beach, California. He didn't appreciate that, but uh, it was just great to be able to spend time with family and uh, friends and hope it was uh, the same for you. Um, We've all heard the slogan, or I think most of you may have heard this slogan, the gift that keeps on giving. Okay? Um, It's been used in hundreds of commercials to sell a variety of things. Things like jewelry, uh, electronics, appliances, um, even chocolate. And I guess as I think about chocolate, it's like, yeah, the gift that keeps on giving pound after pound after pound. I mean, if you stop to think about it, that phrase, it's meant to invoke the feelings people get when they get a gift that gives enjoyment over and over and over again for a long period of time. Whatever product the advertisers think will please consumers and keeps on making them happy often gets labeled the gift that keeps on giving. The reality is, though, Most of those gifts, the gifts like jewelry, eventually get put into a safe deposit box or given away to a family member. Um, The electronics are replaced with something more advanced and the appliance eventually breaks down and needs to be replaced. But as we've been hearing over the last couple of weeks in this series, Jesus Christ, the light of the world, is our great and amazing God. He's visiting us in the flesh and he came bearing gifts. But these gifts that Christ brings don't wear out, don't need to be replaced, and are always good. Um, They don't break, they never need to be upgraded, and they are gifts that do keep on giving. The gift of eternal life, as we heard several weeks ago that Pastor Tim talked about, the gift of, of, of being born again, of being saved, of sins forgiven, the hope of heaven, eternal life, the gift of eternal life. Then last Sunday, we heard about the gift of permanent adoption. What an amazing concept to understand that that the God of the universe will adopt us as sons and daughters. Never to unadopt us, but to allow us to have all of the privileges of sons and daughters of His adopted. Today, we're going to be looking at the gift of victory. The gift of victory. And so, as we bring 2019 to a close... And prepare to move into 2020. Let's celebrate and thank him for the great gifts that he's given to us. Gifts that do keep on giving. And these three that we've talked about the past several weeks are just a small portion of the gifts that God makes available to us. But this morning we're going to talk about the gift of victory. The gift of victory. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me if you would to John. 1 John, the epistle of John, chapter 5. As we consider verses 1 through 12. As we look to understand what it means to know the light, Jesus Christ, and the gift of victory that we can experience in him in this life. And that is a guarantee, that is a gift that he promises and is making available to us. The gift of victory. The gift of victory. Now before we jump into the passage, we need to understand the context and the reason why the Apostle John wrote this letter. To understand that, we need to sort of move back to the first couple of uh, verses in the very first chapter. And so if you want to flip back to 1 John Chapter 1, as we consider, just look at the first couple of verses here. John begins this letter and he says, Here, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Now remember, he was one of the apostles who spent a lot of time with Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that is, Jesus. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And again, he sort of repeats himself, which we have seen, which we have heard. He says, we proclaim to you as an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. He's writing. And then if you go down to verse 4, and he specifically says here, And we are writing these things that your joy may be complete. That your joy will be complete. And I love that because it transitions so well into this fifth chapter where we talk about the victory that we can have in Jesus Christ. And in the midst of that victory, our joy will be made complete. John is declaring to us that we have victory. That we have victory. Um, the balance of John's letter is urging us to forsake the darkness. To walk in the light as he that is Jesus Christ is the light. John is encouraging us to walk in the light, to live in the light of who Jesus is. And when we walk and live in the light of who Jesus Christ is, we can have victory over two incredibly gigantic, huge issues that have plagued humanity ever since the Garden of Eden. And those two issues are death and sin. John's going to tell us here in the fifth chapter how we can have victory over sin and death. Those two huge issues that that humanity has struggled with ever since the Garden of Eden. First point. In Jesus, we can live a daily victory over sin through faith. Look at verses 1 through 5 of 1 John 5. John writes here and he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Everyone. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And notice this. And His commandments are not burdensome. They're not weighty. They're not heavy. They don't overload our lives. Verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory... That has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Christ? A lot of things in here. He says, overcomes, three times he mentions it. We overcome, we overcome, we overcome what? Sin and death, we'll see. We're victorious over sin and death. And let's take these let's take this passage of scripture and begin to unpack it a little bit because the question needs to be asked here as I'm sure you're asking yourselves what is a victorious faith that overcomes sin in the world what does it look like how is it executed on well it all begins first with believing so John says but believing in what that's the question. Is it believing that if I attend church regularly, read the Bible occasionally, attend a Bible study and obey the Ten Commandments, that I will be able to live a life of victory over sin in the world? No. It might help you avoid some of the destructive and devastating sins of the world because you're trying to align your life to to what you've read or what you hear or what you absorb as, as you're gathered together in church. But attending church, reading the Bible, obeying the Ten Commandments won't save you. It's not the kind of life that John's talking about or that Jesus longs for us to experience. So, what is that life? Well, it's to have faith and belief, not in what you do, but in whom you believe. Verse one Jesus is the Christ. That's what John says. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. To have faith and believe, not in what. But in whom? And then notice verse five that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, to John, saving faith, belief, is not some abstract idea in a thing or a series of rituals or formalities that would help us become something better. But he says it's faith in a person, and the person is Jesus Christ. So, what I love about this church, we're all about Jesus Christ and making much of Him. You see, John's saying here that the object of your faith is what is most important. Your faith, your belief, is only as valid as the thing in which it is placed. It's not the amount of faith that you have that saves you. Jesus said in in Matthew chapter 17 that, that if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, a very tiny seed, if you have just a little bit of faith, but if that little bit of faith is placed in the right thing, it will produce tremendous results. It's a faith in the right thing. Faith in the thing that has been proven, verified, and shown to be true. John was making that statement early on in that first chapter. The things they've seen, the things they've heard, the things they've touched, proven and verified. The question here is do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that he is the promised Messiah? The Son of God, the Savior of the world, God in the flesh, the one who said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No other way. It's a faith in the right thing, really the right person. Faith in the thing that has been proven and verified and shown to be true over the last 2,000 years. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? You see, that's all found in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, a a passage of Scripture that we're all familiar with around here. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus then said in John chapter 3, verse 3, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Everyone who believes, verse 1, Who has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father and has been born of Him. Simple as that. I love the fact that if you look down at the rest of verse 1, or as we continue to work our way through that, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That's the starting point. That's the starting point of of victory and overcoming. So it begins. So it all starts. Right there. Now, if I stopped at that first verse, I think some churchgoers would say, well, that's great. You know, I've done that, I'm good to go. But now I might say, wait a minute. If you've been born again, if you've been saved, what would be the effects that it's having on your life? How's your life different? How's it been changed? Notice the rest of verses 1 through 3. John writes, Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not what? They're not burdensome. They're not weighty. They're not heavy. They don't press down on you in such a way that you resent the fact that you are trying to follow Jesus. And so what are the effects of being born again, of being saved, of living a daily life of victory over sin through your faith in Jesus Christ? It's these three things. Having a love for God, a love for others, and a willingness to keep God's commands. Follow his directives. Because it are these things that enable us to overcome the world. And John begins by tying together, I find this interesting, and insisting upon that a love for God And a love for other believers cannot be separated. They go together. They're tied together. But what does it mean to love my brother or sister in Christ, who's been truly born again, genuinely saved? And who is my brother or sister anyway? Well, if you say you love God, then you will, because of your love for God, love those who also share in that same life and are part of the family of God. You see, John is telling us that you can love the other family members. You can love other family members. may have been hard this last week when you had many family members under the same roof, but you can love those family members. Now, with those family members that we are to love, does it mean I have to agree with them all the time, accept everything they do, believe everything they say, get along with them all the time? No, that'd be silly. My parents divorced when I was 10 years old. My father raised my two brothers and me. Two years after the divorce, my dad remarried, and I immediately had two stepbrothers and a stepsister. We had truly the genuine partridge family, I guess you could say. My one stepbrother, Gene, and I were best friends in school before our parents got married. When our parents got married, Gene and I got along great for the first couple of months. We thought this was awesome. Best of friends, living together, 24-7. Not. We began to argue, began to fight, began to disagree on more and more things. It never really got to the point of 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 blows towards each other, but it came pretty close as we began to, I think, vie for our our parents' affection and trying to manage who could be the first in the house as kids. My dad heard Gene and I going at it one morning, and we were going at it pretty bad. I don't even remember what it was. We were down in the basement, and we were screaming and yelling, and we were saying all sorts of things back to one another. And my dad heard us, and he sat us down, and He put that dad finger in our face. It was interesting because when I had my kids, there was one point I was doing the same thing and I said, yes, I do have my dad's finger now. But he said to us, he said, listen, Gene, listen, Kent. You may not agree with each other on things. You may not see eye to eye on things or like the same things, but we're family. We're family. And as family... He said, you will respect each other. You will act in a loving way towards each other. You got it? And Gene and I sat there with this wide-eyed look and said, yes, Dad, we got it. Well, that was a wake-up call for us. Things weren't perfect after that, but my dad would often say, we're family. We're family. You see, I realize that there are a number of genuine believers who are brothers and sisters in Christ out there that I don't necessarily see eye to eye with them on things or agree with them all the time or accept everything they say or do. But they are family. And what God has given to me, what God has given to us, what God has given to us is the opportunity to love and respect them because the scripture says here, everyone, it includes everyone, excludes no one who is a follower of Christ. Everyone who loves the Father Loves whoever has been born of him. You know, I admit it's not easy loving some of my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm sure some have felt the same way about me, as hard as that might be for me to accept. But I realize that. But you know what, I have to constantly work on respecting those who are truly saved and acting in a loving way towards them. Because we're family. Now that doesn't mean where there is sin, it's ignored or excused. The Bible is clear about dealing with that. But we're family. And that's a part of leaning in when we need to lean in with each other. It's iron sharpening iron, as as Solomon wrote in Proverbs. It's about leaning in, but yes, we're family. We're respecting each other. Even though we may not attend the same church, or attend the same Bible study, or maybe have the exact same theological position on things, on some of the peripheral kind of theological things, we're family. And we need to work at loving each other and getting along. One writer said, and I appreciate this, he said, The only way to show love for our invisible God is to love our visible brothers and sisters. I like that. Jesus himself said in John 13, A new commandment, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And here's the point. Here's the reason. By this, all people who see us as family, as the church, will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love God, love others, especially those of the family. And then John says, Obey God's commands. Notice verse 3. Look at what he says there. For this is the love of God. What? That we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. You know, and some hear that and they say, What? Not burdensome? Really? Not weighty? Not heavy? Not difficult? Not hard? That's not been my experience in some churches and and when I've been around some Christians. It's been about keeping all the rules and and it's become a burden and it's a weight that, that hasn't brought much joy or freedom. I'm afraid that some in the church have at times added their own rules and regulations to the Christian life that has made it a burden, has made it weighty, has made it heavy for others. Because what they have done, I think, is they have blended God's commands with their own personal convictions and opinions on the Word of God. They've elevated those personal convictions to the level of biblical commands or directives and try to impose those upon others around them. And it's a heavy weight and a burden. You can see Jesus said it, his commands are not a burden. They're not weighty, they're not heavy. I mean the Pharisees, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, did it with all of their additional petty rules and regulations. They had some 631 laws they said the Jews needed to live their lives by on the Sabbath in addition to all that God had given to them in his written word. And you see, for the nation of Israel, it had become a burden. A heavy burden. And for those religious leaders, the addition of all of these added rules and regulations that they that they purported, for them, what it did is it became a, an external measure of godliness that was driven by pride and arrogance and not love, it wasn't love, it was adherence to a list of rules and regulations and it produced for those religious leaders this feeling of superiority and arrogance. Jesus had some very strong words for those religious leaders and he has strong words for us as well. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 30, Jesus said to me, he said to the nation of, of Israel, he said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And he's referring to all of these religious rules and regulations that the, that the religious leaders had imposed upon the nation. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden with these rules and regulations. He says, I'll give you rest. Come to me, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And he says, You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm afraid that we, at times in the Christian arena, in the Christian life, we've at times made the Christian life such a burden, such a weighty thing. It was never intended to be that. John writes, the first chapter. I'm writing these things so that you might have joy in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Joy in adherence to the directives and the commands of God and we'll talk about that here in just a minute. You see, obedience to the commands of God were never, never intended to become a burden. Never intended to be a heavy weight especially when it's love that motivates us. Love seeks to please and doesn't like to disappoint. If you've been feeling overwhelmed with this heaviness of living the Christian life, maybe it's because you're trying to live the rules and regulations that others have placed upon you. In 2006, a study was done to determine how a fence and a boundary affected the behavior of children on the playground. James Dobson made reference to this study, I think in one of his books, I don't remember which one it was, but the researchers constructed a playground with no fences. During the experiment, the children stayed in the center, huddled around together, around the play equipment, almost in fear with a lot of uncertainty and never ventured out beyond the playground structure. They took note of that. And then the researchers put up a fence. Gave them a lot of space. And once that fence was put up, immediately the children's behavior changed. Instead of fearfully staying in the center of the playground, what they discovered is that they wandered with freedom all the way to the fence, exploring, enjoying the entire space. And the researchers' overwhelming conclusion was this that with given and understood limitations, boundaries, the children felt safe and more secure to explore the entire playground because of a boundary. In this case, the fence. The children felt at ease to explore the entire space. They discovered that fences brought freedom. The absence of fences created fear, apprehension, uncertainty in the children, not knowing how far they could actually venture out from the playground. God's word, his commands, his directives, they're the boundaries, they are the fence which brings freedom to us. You know, we don't help ourselves or other people by removing the boundaries. To say, oh, hey, go do whatever you want to do. It's not that big of a deal. You know, those commands that God gave are just so outdated. We don't do ourselves or any others any favors. Because without those boundaries, without those directives being adhered to, we'll hurt ourselves and hurt others. They are there for our good. They're there for our protection. I remember as a youth pastor many, many years ago was taking a group of high school kids, a group of 30, to Colorado to ski at Winter Park, driving the bus late at night, driving through the, the mountains in Colorado to get to Winter Park, a lot of switchbacks, a lot of curves, and as I'm driving that bus, what I so appreciated when you're driving through the mountains were the guardrails. Those guardrails brought a great deal of freedom for me, it reduced the anxiety And it made me understand that those guardrails were there for a purpose. Why? For my protection. For our protection. So that we don't go careening off the side of the mountain to our death. God's directives, his commands, are the guardrails that he wants us to live by. And when we live within the guardrails of God's word, it provides us protection. It provides us freedom. It provides us joy in the midst of living our life for Jesus Christ. But here's the question. How and why is it that God's commands are not a burden? John gives the reason in the next couple of verses. Look at verses 4 and 5. John says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. We overcome the world. And this is the victory. The victory that has overcome the world. What is it? It is our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Why are the commands, the instructions from God, not a burden? Because through faith in Jesus, because of a new nature, because we now have the Holy Spirit living in us and empowering us to live a victorious life over sin, we do not have to muscle it any longer. We're not doing it alone. It is our faith in Jesus that allows us to overcome the things in the world. And you might say, well, what things are we overcoming in the world? Well, John spoke of that earlier in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, where he said, Everything in the world, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. You see, the term world, as John used it, he meant the world system and all of its values. It's it's predisposition to a denial of God and the things of God. That's the world in which we live. I mean, think of the moral pressures that we all face in the world today. I mean, think of the standards of society that surround us, constantly intruding into our minds, calling us to satisfy the flesh. The constant pressure to make us conform to the attitudes and the standards of the world. I mean, think of the temptations that we all face to cheat, to lie to get ahead at all costs, to be dishonest, to take advantage of others, to maneuver, to manipulate, to be resentful, to be jealous, to be cruel, to step on and step over people. These are all the pressures that come to us from the world. And you see, before we came to know Jesus, the world, the world held us in bondage. We were slaves to the things of the world by the power of its desires. With the new nature, with our faith in Jesus Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit in us, he has opened our eyes, opened our thinking to the greater desirability of loving Jesus and serving Jesus, loving to obey him, not wanting to disappoint the one that we now love, the one that we serve, the one who sacrificed himself for us out of love. It's our faith in Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit that's working in us and through us that provides the victory to overcome sin in the world. Jesus said in John 16, he said, In the world you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. You will have difficulty. But take heart. I have overcome this world. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul wrote that the sting of death is sin, The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gave us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 John 4.4 For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's the kind of life that that God wants us to live, that God wants us to have, and the reason why we can live this victorious life without feeling as if the, the directness of God are burdensome. They're not. When you understand the reality of why God's placed those guardrails of protection, they are for our protection. You see, the victory over the world is a moment-by-moment moment surrendering of self to Jesus as we daily encounter God in his word and exalt and worship him. Well, not only have we struggled with gaining victory over sin since the Garden of Eden, but we've also, the other major issue that we've struggled with is death. That brings us secondly to, in Jesus, we can count on an eternal victory over death. So how can we count on an eternal victory over death? How does that come? Believe. Believe in the historical Jesus as the Son of God and all that he did and all that he claimed. Look at verses 6, 7, and 8 as John continues to write. He says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. John begins by establishing the fact of the historical realities of Jesus Christ and his ministry that brought victory over sin and death. First, John says that he came by water. Now you might think, what do you mean, came by water? Well, John's establishing the historical ministry of Jesus Christ. Came by water refers to his water baptism at the beginning of that public ministry. Jesus was baptized to demonstrate what type of Messiah he came to be. He came to be an obedient servant. To identify with those he came to save. At his baptism, with people gathered at the Jordan River, the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. And God the Father declared with hundreds of people standing there, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so with those folks gathered there, they were witnesses to everything that happened and able to testify to this amazing event. So John's doing, he's establishing the historicity of Jesus Christ and his ministry. Jesus was testified by the Holy Spirit and John the Baptist declared that that he is the Christ by pointing to him and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But then second, the second significant historical event that John is making reference to that was also witnessed by hundreds of people, it says that he came by blood. And this refers to his shedding of blood on the cross of Calvary for the remission of our sins. It was his atoning sacrifice. His substitutionary death, the spotless Lamb of God who, who paid the price for our sin and made deliverance and forgiveness from our sins available. And then beyond those two historical events, John makes witness to a third witness to these, a third testimony. And that's the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And it's God the Holy Spirit that transforms a life when a person's put their faith and believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God who was raised from the dead. You see, the Holy Spirit, all three agree, the water, the blood, the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into our life, opens our eyes and minds, personalizing the historical realities of Christ, helping us to understand that we are a child of the King, adopted into his family, born again, sins forgiven, death conquered, and the hope of heaven and eternal life. You see, that kind of hope is supernatural. It's divine. See, the Holy Spirit takes the realities of those events of 2,000 years ago and applies them to our lives this very day. And they become real. And they become true. John continues to argue here for the reasonableness of Jesus in verses 9 and 10. Notice what he says there. He says, If we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God that he who bore concerning his son, whoever believes in the son of God has his testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. The testimony of the historical events, the realities lived out in our lives. There are all kinds of people that we're willing to take advice from. And believe their advice. I mean we take the advice of our doctor or should if they tell us that we should lose weight, lower our blood pressure or cholesterol because the tests are showing a problem. We take their advice or should. Uh, We're taking advice from our financial advisor to plan and prepare for retirement or should. Or from a lawyer telling us that we should know what we should know or do or need to do in certain legal situations. I mean we will even take the advice of a stranger if we're lost, thinking that they might be able to help us find our way. We're believing and trusting their words, their testimony and their statements is true. And here's the point that John's making. Shouldn't we believe the words, the testimony of God even more, especially when he has directed the testimony to be written down by the eyewitnesses of the events of Jesus' life in the Bible and proved to be reliable and true? True inaccurate. You see, God's testimony is far greater. It's more reliable than any human testimony. And then you have the testimony of others whose lives have been changed by the power of God from one generation to the next. I'm amazed at this. For the last 2,000 years, life after life after life has been changed and transformed by the realities of the historical Jesus Christ and the power and the work of the Holy Spirit bringing those things to life. Within each one of us. And then verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. This life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I love the statement. God gave us eternal life. God gave. God gave us something we needed. Something that we could never have gotten on our own. Eternal life. Sin's forgiven. We couldn't do enough good works to get what God was offering to us. We couldn't earn it. The reality is we don't even deserve it. But God gave us the opportunity of eternal life. And that life comes to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Whoever has the son, John says, has life. So what does it mean? It, what does it mean to have the Son of God. I mean, the word have can communicate a lot of different things. When you say, I have a dollar, or I have a cold, or the flu, or I have a doctor, there is something common to all of those meanings when you have something. That something, it does its thing for you. If you have a dollar, it buys you a dollar's worth of stuff. Not much stuff, but it'll buy you a dollar's worth of stuff if you have a dollar. If you have a cold or the flu, it does its thing for you with a runny nose, a cough, and it makes you feel lousy. If you have a doctor, he treats you, does, and he does his thing for you by writing you a script To have the son, to have Jesus, means he does his thing for you. How can you have eternal victory over death? By letting Jesus do his thing for you. And by believing and by living with eternity in view and total dependence upon Jesus Christ, letting Jesus do his thing for you. In 1992, in the Summer Olympics in Barcelona, it featured an incredibly tremendous example of a gift of victory. Victory that couldn't have been obtained unless somebody came alongside this participant. It was British runner, Derek Redman. He was in the 400-meter sprint semifinal race, hoping to move into the finals for a chance at the victory of a gold medal. He was the one who was expected to win that gold medal. With roughly 100 meters to go in the race, Derek felt a pop in his leg. He took a few more steps and collapsed on the track in pain. He tore a hamstring. Even though he knew he wouldn't qualify for the next race for the possibility of competing for a gold medal, what Derek did was amazing. He struggled to his feet. He began to hobble, then to hop to the finish line, grimacing in pain, determined to complete the race. His father, who was in the stands when he saw what happened, rushed down from the stands, pushed aside the security and others to come alongside of his son, Derek's father would not let his son quit, was going to be there with him, helping him cross the finish line. What Derek's father did is he pushed aside the track officials, pushed aside the medical personnel, And so, what happened is Derek leaned on his father, and the two of them limped to the the finish line together. Love the picture there of a loving father stepping out of the stands to come alongside his son. You see, the gift of victory, of sins forgiven, victory over death, and the hope of heaven come to us as we lean and depend upon our God. You see, we could never finish the race on our own. The victory over sin and death will only come because of what Jesus has done and is doing in our lives. And that comes only as we choose to accept the life Jesus Christ offers us and to live our lives as his adopted sons and daughters. And daily, moment by moment, lean into the one who loves us with an everlasting love who will not let us quit. He will not let us quit. He promises us victory over sin and guarantees victory over death. Jesus Christ is the gift that keeps on giving and giving and giving. Would you pray with me? I'm